boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. And me, Dave Ansell. This week it's our turn to pick our best bits from The Naked Scientist archives. So for the next hour we'll be looking back at our favourite moments. Plus we've the next instalment in our Elemental Chemistry series looking at chemistry in its element. Coming up we sing along with Nobel Prize winning physicists. find out how medical scanning technology can help us see the stars. We'd like to see, for example, in my work, gas clouds uh, that are busy forming new stars, and we'd like to see what they look like, the way that we could go around 3D clouds in the sky. And Laura Soule joins Dr Howell's Ministry of Chemistry. Next, Dr Howell did something that seemed even more stupid. So, now we've got a light bulb with no glass, because we broke the glass, we've just got the filaments, which is made of tungsten. That's all coming up on today's show, and if you'd like to get in touch with any questions or comments about our selection, drop us an email to chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. For our first pick, high-voltage fun at the Teslathon. The Teslathon sees enthusiastic amateurs get together to show off their homemade Tesla coils. Now, these are huge, high-voltage devices based on the same principle as an electronic transformer. Now, a transformer works because a current in one circuit, which they call the primary circuit, induces a current of a different size in the secondary circuit. Now, this is actually how mains electricity is scaled down from the high voltage and power lines into the safer 240 voltage that gets into your house. Now, I met up with Eric Woodruff to find out more about what the Teslathon really is. Teslathon is a group of people who are interested in high-voltage electronics, Tesla coils, and pretty much anything to do with high-voltage, high-current, static electricity, all sorts of technology-related stuff like that. So really anything that can make a nice big spark? That's very much part of it. Some of us try and make the biggest spark possible. Some of us try and do it in more interesting ways. And, of course, we try and push the modern technology to do what something can be done 18th century-wise uh, by Tesla himself. So how did Tesla's original coils work? They seem a very simple principle. They are a very simple principle. Um, effectively, it's a, a standard transformer with a primary and a secondary. Um, and what Tesla did was he also introduced resonance so that the primary has an associated capacitance, the secondary has an associated capacitance, and the two synchronise with each other and form a resonant coupling, very much like a young child pushing somebody on a swing. Uh, you can get a very small movement that can be made into a very large movement just by uh, the process of resonant rise or multiplication. And this enables you to have huge voltages, and this is what gives you these lightning-like forks that seem to be flying across the room behind us. Well, that's right. I mean, some of the coils start at 240 volts. They quite often cheat and go up to 10,000 volts or so into the primary of the coil, and then, due to resonant rise and the way the Tesla coil is constructed, um, we'll get 100,000 volts or 200,000 volts from the top. But because it is high-frequency AC, that means that we can then push quite a lot of power into a spark or an arc, which will then grow much longer than 100,000 volts sounds. And that's why they do seem to be reaching out and fingering their way across the room. There are some really huge sort of forks of lightning across there. Is it actually safe? No, is the simple answer. Um, like, like most things that are interesting or fun, it isn't safe. You have to be very, very careful. Most of the people in this room have been doing it for many, many years. They know their equipment because they've had to build it from scratch. It's not something you can sort of uh, just go out and buy. There is inherent safety. We all abide by a set of rules for the safe running of these sort of events. People have to stand back from the equipment. The equipment has to be able to be made safe. But obviously there is that inter inherent danger. Any high voltages, high currents and unpredictable equipment, you've got to uh, view with a degree of uh, distrust. <laughs> 
And I'd imagine that the element of distrust she has means that you actually have to be fairly reserved in public. So the people who come along to the Teslathon this weekend won't really see the full power of what your devices can do. They will see a limited amount. Um, There are some things certainly that we wouldn't do in a public environment that we would do in private because obviously the the safety of the public and the people who are watching the Tesla coils here today is absolutely paramount. Um, We we don't want to hurt anybody. (laughs) It would uh, really ruin the enjoyment of the whole event for everybody, you know. And Cambridge Industrial Museum, where we are today, seems like a very appropriate setting for this. I understand you come back each year to do another Teslathon here. Does it feel like home? Uh, certainly for me. I mean, I've, I've been doing this for about seven years now. Um, the actual Teslathon has been here, to my knowledge, for nine or ten. It's usually on the same weekend every year, which for some reason happens to be Halloween. I don't know whether that's uh, <laughs> by planning or by accident. But no, we've always been very welcome here and uh, obviously with the, the connection to 18th century technology um, we seem to fit in very well with the other machines and equipment at the, uh, the pumping station. And of course we all like to go and have a, a look round at that sort of technology too. That was Derek Woodruff talking to Ben at Cambridge's annual Teslathon. I joined Ben there afterwards and it's amazing to see the things they do. They had like huge, great Tesla coils, great big sparks coming out. It doesn't feel like a safe environment in which to sit, though. Yeah, I think you're safe as long as you're more than about three or four metres away from the Tesla coils. <laughs> they had some lovely, much more subtle things. Though. They had like little tubes with sparks and the, the tubes were tuned to different notes. So it set off different sparks in them and you get tunes being played. So just playing music with sparks, excellent. And it's actually after the doors close at the end of it that the really interesting stuff happens, isn't it, Dave? Yeah, this is rather scarred onto my brain, certainly onto my camera. They got a pumpkin, filled it with ice, and then dropped dropped thermite reactions, so dropped molten iron onto this ice, which all got a little bit explosive, as my lovely high-speed camera can testify with a big lump on its lens. (laughs) At least it still works, though, and we put it to good use with kitchen science. Now, talking of kitchen science, we have the first of this week's experiments. Just how useful is a chocolate teapot. To be honest, I have absolutely no idea how useful a chocolate teapot is. So in the best traditions of kitchen science, I thought we'd try some experiments to find out. Well, before we get started with our chocolate-based experiments, could you tell me, and now I think I can guess, but why is it that a chocolate teapot would be so useless? Well, the reason why chocolate is so nice to eat is that its point at which it melts is very similar to the temperature of your mouth, so it should melt in your mouth. So if you're going to put boiling water into it, it should melt really quickly and just collapse. So I guess what we need to find out is how thick the walls of the chocolate teapot need to be in order to not melt through by the time the tea is brewed. How are we going to find this out? We could just make lots of chocolate teapots, but that would take ages and use a really ridiculous amount of chocolate. So instead, what I've got is a whole series of tubes with different amounts of chocolate in the bottom of each one. I'm going to pour boiling water over them and see how long they take to melt. So the tubes aren't actually sealed at the bottom, there's just a plug of chocolate in there of different thicknesses. And in theory, at least one of these thicknesses of chocolate should stay solid long enough to brew a cup of tea. Well, because I've got no idea how thick this has got to be, I've gone for a very wide range of different thicknesses of chocolate, from about 10 millimetres up to about 80 millimetres, so one of those ought to survive the brewing time. And uh, it looks to me like you've chosen to go for dark chocolate. Why have you chosen that over, say, milk or white chocolate? Well, milk chocolate's got a lot of milk fat in it, and milk fat's got a lower melting temperature than cocoa fat. So dark chocolate ought to melt at a higher temperature, so it ought to be slightly better than milk chocolate for this purposes. So you've given ourselves the best chance just by using dark chocolate? That was my plan, yes. OK, so I guess the first thing we need to do in that case is boil a kettle and pour some water into each of these tubes. I'll go and get that kettle. So while Dave goes to get the kettle, I'm just going to have a look at these tubes of chocolate. And they are just plastic tubes open at both ends with a thick plug of chocolate. Now, I don't think these are going to last very long when we pour boiling water in. And here comes Dave now with a steaming hot kettle, so we can try it out. So, Dave, are you going to put them in in any particular order? Well, I figured I'd start on the thickest plug of chocolate first, because that should last the longest. So it's probably fairest to start with that one. And I'll try and put about the same amount of water on top of each one, roughly, so it's a fair test. So there isn't a different weight of water that could just push the plug of chocolate out? Yeah, that's the idea. So what is it about chocolate? I know lots of people enjoy eating it, and I certainly won't complain, but what is it that gives it that melt-in-the-mouth property? 
Well, basically just the fats in the cocoa butter happen to have a melting point, which is very similar, just a bit below your mouth temperature. So it will melt in your mouth. So what else is in chocolate? I know you've already mentioned cocoa fats and milk fats, but surely there's more to it than that. Well, a good quality dark chocolate is basically just cocoa fat, um, some cocoa solids, which are the things which aren't fat from a cocoa bean, and lots of sugar. If you're getting into a milk chocolate, then that's got a lot of milk fats in it as well. And in Britain, they tend to add some vegetable oils as well, which the people in the continent don't really believe makes it proper chocolate. OK, so what about white chocolate? Well, I think that's got the cocoa butter in it, the cocoa fats, but with much less cocoa solids, so that it hasn't got the dark colour. OK, well, there's just been a bit of activity with these tubes. The tube with the thinnest plug of chocolate in has just dropped some chocolate onto the floor and emptied itself. In fact, that's really not a very pleasant thing to watch, the way it's just oozing chocolate into a dollop on the floor. Dave, how long did that take? Well, that seems to have been about four minutes, which is not bad for only a 10 millimetre piece of chocolate. It's a lot better than you'd expect, really. And four minutes is actually about as long as you need to brew a cup of tea. Indeed, so maybe chocolate is a better teapot material than we'd first thought. So now that we know that a thickness of chocolate, which is only about 10 mil or so, about a centimetre, should be thick enough to make a teapot out of, shall we make a teapot? Yeah, I think so. We'll probably make one with rather thicker walls than that because a teapot's quite a lot bigger than the 40 millimetre tubes we're using. So maybe we'll go for about a 20 millimetre wall and see what happens. Excellent. And I do like my tea quite strong, so it would be good to be able to brew it for that little bit longer. So how are we going to make a teapot? Well, my plan is to basically take a bowl, fill it with chocolate, and then put a second bowl inside it to make it the hole to put the tea in, and then let that set, and then drill a hole in and add a spout. How on earth are you going to make the spout? Well, my plan is to get a tube of greaseproof paper, kind of splodge as much chocolate as I can around that, maybe with another layer of greaseproof paper to hold that chocolate in, let that set, and then kind of saw it up a bit and make it approximately circular, and glue it onto the front of the bowl which we've already made. This doesn't sound a particularly scientific approach, Dave. Are you sure this is appropriate for kitchen science? Well, if it's going to be a teapot, it has to look like a teapot, doesn't it? So we can't make a chocolate bowl and see how useful that is. So we've got to make it with a spout and ideally a handle as well and see what happens. Dave and I are now going to go into his kitchen and make ourselves a chocolate teapot. We'll come back to you later on in the show to let you know how good it was at brewing some tea. We'll go back to that kitchen science later on. Still to come, we find out how the house of the future could be made by a giant inkjet printer and we find out how to get a fireball from an orange. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You're listening to a special Naked Scientist where Ben and I have picked our favourite bits from the Naked Scientist archive. Now, Ben, you've chosen the post-preangial proceedings of the Cavendish Society as your next pick. Why, other than because it sounds great? <laughs> well, I picked this one because I've really enjoyed going to the event itself. These songs haven't been heard anywhere in public since the 1930s, so it was quite unique in itself. And it was also a really nice chance to learn about the other side of these famous physicists, and that was their fun side. The Whipple Museum of the History of Science played uh, an important host to a historic event this week, which was based on a booklet that was published over 100 years ago, and it was called Postprandial, that means having eaten something, uh, Proceedings of the Cavendish Society. And this is basically where students and professors of physics would relax over a century ago uh, by, and get together and sing some songs. And Ben Valsler went along to visit Dr Jeff Hughes from the University of Manchester and was treated to a performance of some of those songs that hadn't actually been performed for more than 75 years. Postprandial proceedings of the Cavendish Physical Society were a collection of after-dinner songs that the research students sang at the annual Cavendish dinner every year. Some of the students were very, very good singers, and so they sang favourite songs of theirs. Some of them were very good aspiring lyricists, and they rewrote the words to some of the songs to reflect the events and personalities of the Cavendish Laboratory. So... They just told stories in their songs about what was going on in the lab. This was a student thing. Was this just a lot of fun by the students and the young researchers, or did some of the more eminent people get involved as well? Oh, at the annual dinner, uh, the professor would be there, the head of the laboratory, and there would be guests. 
who would have been usually former students of the laboratory who had gone on to jobs and scientific eminence elsewhere. But they'd be invited back, and that would create a very nice sense of tradition and continuity with the past for the current students. And the former laboratory members could be held up as role models for them as to what they might aspire to. So a very good opportunity to meet really some of the era-defining physicists and scientists of the time and at the same time have quite a lot of fun. Absolutely. Can you imagine being in a dinner where you would see your head of department and a well-known Nobel Prize winner standing on their chairs, linked arms, singing Old Lang Syne at the top of their voices? So that was very good for the research students and created a great deal of entertainment. This sounds like a very casual thing. It happened at a yearly dinner, but how do we know about it? This sort of thing usually would be a bit of an inside joke that would pass by unnoticed. This was a very serious informal tradition. The students were so pleased with their own songs that they kept them, and in 1904 they published them in a pamphlet, and that was republished in six editions up to 1926. So that's how we know about these songs and we know something from diaries and letters and so on about how they were actually performed. So could you give me an example of the sorts of lyrics that they were coming up with? Yeah. A.A. Um, a. Robb, the mathematical physicist, wrote this one about 1905-1906 and it's to a sort of cod Irish jig called Father O'Flynn and I like this one because I play the fiddle and I play Irish jigs quite a lot. So imagine an Irish jig rhythm, and it's, Of dons we can offer a charming variety, all the big pots of the Royal Society. Still there is no one of more notoriety than our professor, the pride of us all. Here's a health to Professor J.J. May he hunt irons for many a day and take observations and work out equations and find the relations which forces obey. When the professor has solved a new riddle or found a fresh fact, he's as fit as a fiddle. He goes to the tea room and sits in the middle and jokes about everything under the sun. Then if you try to look grave at his jest, you'll burst off the buttons which fasten your vest. For when he starts chaffing, though tea you be quaffing, you cannot help laughing along with the rest. And this evening we've seen some of them performed by the HBS Choir. Do you think this might be the first time they've been performed in maybe a hundred years? As far as I know, this is the first time that these, the three songs that we've heard tonight have been performed since probably the 1930s. So really quite a historic event that we've been involved in. Absolutely. Uh, historians of science these days are really interested in recreating historical experiments. What we've heard tonight is the recreation of historical songs, and I'm absolutely thrilled. This there is no possible doubt, no probable possible shadow of doubt, no probable possible shadow of doubt, no possible doubt forever. It was Dr Jeff Hughes, who's the president of the British Society for the History of Science, and the HPS Chorus performing songs of the Cavendish Society, and that's the first time they've been performed since the 1930s. Next, we have an interview with Professor Alyssa Goodman from Harvard University. She's doing some amazing work combining technology from different sciences with some startling results. Now, we want to know what we can see in the night sky, and we want to know how we can see it even better. And it's not that normal when you see things which have been invented for life here on Earth being applied to space, because normally it's the other way around. But that's exactly what Professor Alyssa Goodman from Harvard University is doing. She's taking some of the systems that have been geared up to do better body scans with MRI and applying them to images of the night sky to enhance those pictures. And she's with us now. Hello, Alyssa. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So tell us a, a sort of... I've given a brief intro there, but tell us a bit more about this work. Sure. Um, well, we have a challenge in astronomy that more and more often we're able to get a third dimension of data, so something like distance, not always exactly distance, but instead of seeing just a flat sky, we can see things where we know 
what's at what distance. And we'd like to see, for example, in my work, gas clouds uh, that are busy forming new stars, and we'd like to see what they look like, the way that we could go around 3D clouds in the sky. But, of course, we can't do that in astronomy, so we need a way to put the images back together into something that looks more like a three-dimensional picture. And it turns out that the computer software to do that that we need is very similar to the software that they use in medical imaging. Why is it such a problem, then, compiling pictures into three dimensions like that? Well, it turns out it's, it's less of a problem in other fields. And in astronomy, people are just not used to having that kind of information. And so they were starting to try to build their own software. Um, and then uh, we realized that a lot of other people have faced this and done a very good job of, for example, making animated movies. And so you may know that Pixar and companies like that have some of the most powerful computers around. And it turns out that 3D as particularly 3D animation, so moving 3D pictures is rather computationally intensive to do at high resolution. And so people in other fields, uh, as I mentioned before, notably medical imaging and uh, in and, and, and film and movies in Hollywood, had figured that out um, quite well. And so we're trying to borrow on what they already learned. And when you start doing this, do your, do your images literally come alive? Can you see things that, or can you identify details that may previously been, have been overlooked? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that we're interested in, in my own work, which again has to do with star formation, is um, what the impact of, of jets of material and, and expanding shells from stars have on the clouds that the stars are forming in. So imagine a, a terrestrial cloud and you sort of set off a bomb in it and you wanted to see what the, the expansion wave, some kind of sphere expanding from that uh, bomb looked like. Um, you'd really love to be able to see a 3D image of that. And so when stars uh, set off either supernova explosions or just very powerful winds from stars, the same kind of thing happens to these clouds that they're in. And it's very important for us to understand what that looks like. And in a lot of cases, it, it, it's very difficult to see whether or not that's happening, even though it's very important because it tells you what happens to the, these clouds over millions of years as they evolve. And this software has let us, among other things, see the outflows and the shells um, that come from these stars in a 3D way that the human brain understands that was very hard to see when looking at just slices of the images before. Didn't researchers begin to speculate that, in fact, our own solar system, in other words, the sun and our clutch of planets, actually get buffeted into existence by a big star nearby that was doing something similar to what you're describing? It was putting a jet of material out which pushed a cloud of gas to make it fall into itself, which then formed us. Yes, absolutely. There's a theory called triggered star formation, and the idea is that there are these gas clouds out there that are marginally what's called self-gravitating, which means that they're sort of held together by their own gravity, but not quite. They might blow apart, they might collapse, but if you come by and smush them a little bit and sort of trigger them, that's where the triggering comes from, then they're more likely to collapse quickly and make something like our solar system. And one way to do that is having a big blast wave either from one of these outflows or from some sort of shell, possibly even a supernova come by. And what are you actually looking at at the moment? What's the prime focus of, of the study at the moment? Well, right now, um, we have something that we've been doing over the last five or six years called the Complete Survey of Star-Forming Regions, and that's a long, funny acronym you can look up online. But anyway, what it, what it does is it looks at some of the most nearby star-forming regions with just about every technique we can use from the ground uh, at optical wavelengths and at, at radio wavelengths. And at, in the radio is where we can make these three-dimensional images. And importantly, the Spitzer Space Telescope, which is the infrared counterpart of the Hubble Space Telescope, has also looked at these same regions. So they're essentially targeted regions where we really want to try to understand the whole process of star formation. And what we've been able to do with this 3D uh, imaging project that we call astronomical medicine is to be able to give people 3D views of what these very large regions of space look like um, to be able to put back together in our minds a picture of what's going on. And then from that picture, we make hypotheses. For example, our, our recent work is about the details of the role of self-gravity, of, of how likely little bits of this gas are to collapse over time on themselves. And to understand whether or not our theories and our mathematical ideas are right, really the best way to do that is to see a picture of what they mean. And, and we've been able to convince some people lately that we think we're on the right track. And you have some absolutely spectacular pictures on your own website. And if anyone intrigued enough uh, to look at it, having heard you here on the radio, Alyssa, uh, wants to check you out, where, where's the web address so they can go and take a look at those pictures? Well, actually, the best way to do it is just type my name, A-L-Y-S-S-A -S -S Goodman, G-O-O-D-M-A-N, in Google, and I think it's the first link that comes up. It's 
easier than typing. And actually, now you've been on here, if they type in Alyssa Goodman naked, uh, they'll, they'll even hear your interview all over again. Wonderful. <laughs> Better than naked photos. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Alyssa. OK, bye-bye, Chris. So Alyssa Goodman, who is from Harvard University, she's come up with a fantastic way to apply the techniques used to analyse body scans here on Earth to deep space and begin to reveal some of the mysteries of what goes on when stars are blowing themselves to pieces and disrupting their local cosmic neighbourhood. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Dave Ansell and Ben Valsler. We're taking you through our favourite bits of naked science, plus a few new bits thrown in. Now we'll go back to the kitchen to see how our chocolate teapot is getting along. Welcome back to The Naked Scientists' chocolate teapot tea party. Now, Dave, you've made yourself quite an impressive-looking chocolate teapot here. Can you run through again how it was made? Well, I first got a stupid quantity of chocolate, about 1.3 kilograms of it. I then got a bowl filled it to the half full of chocolate and put a smaller bowl inside to make the gap to put the tea in. So that actually formed the bowl shape that's now the base of this teapot? Yep. And then I made a tube of chocolate by getting a tube of greaseproof paper, sort of plastering it with chocolate and putting more greaseproof paper around the outside, putting that in the fridge and setting it. So that's formed our spout. And how have you actually attached the two together? Uh, I basically just got molten chocolate and used it as a kind of glue and it welds the two together really nicely. Excellent one. Who'd have thought the chocolate would make a good welding material? And I can see also that you have a handle, although knowing that there's over a kilo of chocolate there, I'm not sure I'd trust it. No, I think the handle is there mostly for aesthetic purposes. (laughs) Well, I suppose it's not a teapot if it doesn't have a handle and a spout. So I guess the next thing to do is just find out if we can brew some tea. Indeed, I've got a couple of Earl Grey tea bags here. Lovely. Open the lid, put the tea bags in. There's plenty of space in there. We should get at least two cups of tea out of this. Hopefully, yep. And I'll turn on the kettle. OK, now, I'm assuming nobody is going to try this out at home. But just in case they do decide to get industrious with chocolate and make themselves a chocolate teapot, what are we doing to make sure that we don't accidentally spill boiling water all over ourselves? We've put everything on a tray so there's something to catch the boiling water if this teapot doesn't quite work. How confident are you that it will work? We'll find out. Well, water's just gone off the boil, so let's pour it in and see what we can do. Well, it certainly hasn't melted through yet. I can see that you've even made a chocolate lid. Now, that looks very thin compared to the rest of the teapot, Dave. How confident are you that this lid is going to hold up? The lid is probably the lowest level of confidence I have, I'm afraid, Ben. (laughs) Well, with all that steam condensing on the underside of it, we shall have to see. So now I guess we just sit back for a few minutes and uh, let the tea brew for maybe three or four minutes? Yeah, on the instructions it said three to five minutes, so we've got to wait a couple of minutes and see what happens. Well, it's already been two minutes since we poured the water in, but unfortunately we've had a bit of an incident with the lid. Uh, Dave, what's happening? Well, hot air and steam rise, the heat's coming up, then you've got hot steam condensing on the bottom of this chocolate lid, which is causing it to melt. So the lid was very, very thin. It was rather an afterthought. If you want to make a chocolate teapot at home, make the lid more than five or six millimetres thick. I think you're going to want the sort of 20 millimetres thick like the rest of the teapot. Well, you had very artistically included a handle on the top of the teapot, but that is now... uh... Definitely gone into our tea. Maybe we should stick to China for teapot lids. (laughs) Okay, so the lid has melted through a bit, but the main bowl seems to still be very intact. How does it feel on the outside? Does it feel warm? It still feels cold on the outside, so it seems to be working quite well as an insulator. Obviously, the chocolate on the inside is insulating the chocolate on the outside, so it's not melting. Now, obviously, we're going to pour this out through the spout, which isn't quite as thick as the main body. Do you see any problem with that? Hopefully, it's not going to be there for very long. It might work as well. OK, well, I think it's now been pretty much long enough. we better pour this tea in and see if it's drinkable. And now for the moment of truth, we'll try and pour the tea out of the teapot. And the second cup. I am really, really impressed. The spout held firm. It does really look like tea as well. I expected it just to look like a chocolatey, murky mess. 
And inside the bowl, it's all clearly melted, but it's still pretty much bowl-shaped. It hasn't just become a puddle of chocolate. In fact, the only bit which has really melted badly is the lid, which is now sitting inside the bowl. But other than that, it looks pretty intact. I think what's going on is that although chocolate melts quite easily, when it's molten, it's still got some structural integrity. It doesn't actually slump too quickly of its own accord unless you actually push it or it's trying to support its own weight like the lid was. It tends to flow quite slowly if you try and pour it, even when it's melted. Yeah, it's very, very viscous. So I think the molten chocolate was just sort of sitting there and chocolate's made out of fat and fat's actually quite a good insulator. So the molten chocolate was insulating the unmolten chocolate outside so the outside still stayed solid and it didn't melt. So it's actually a layer of melted chocolate insulating the rest and this is why it didn't melt all the way through. And even though, I mean, this is quite a bit thicker than the test plug we used outside, it's actually done a very good job. Yeah, chocolate is obviously better than you'd expect for making teapots out of. I guess we better try the tea and see if it's any good. So, uh, cheers, Dave. Cheers, Ben. That's actually not too bad, you know. It, it does taste a lot sweeter than I'd usually have my tea, but it's still hot. It's perfectly palatable. And I think we've proved, actually, that you can make a teapot out of chocolate. Well, chocolate probably isn't the ideal material for making teapots out of, but it's a lot better than you'd expect. Okay, so now we have a slightly chocolatey cup of tea to enjoy, but it's really not too bad at all. And uh, and now we have to think of what to do with this large pile of now slightly steamy chocolate, which appears to have a tea bag melted into the middle. Any ideas, Dave? I can't possibly imagine, Ben. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find some way of getting rid of it. Luckily, my housemates were more than willing to help clear up after that experiment. I can see why they would be. Um, we've another kitchen science coming up in just a few minutes, but now we return to our series of chemistry in its element. This week's element sees us immersed in a murder mystery. Over to Henry Nichols. During World War I, Agatha Christie worked in a hospital and then a pharmacy, an experience that could explain the presence of poisons in many of her plots. In The Pale Horse a thriller published in 1961, the star of the show was thallium, also known as the poisoner's poison, because many salts of this soft, silvery metal are soluble in water, producing a colourless, odourless and tasteless liquid with a delayed effect on its victim. Here's an excerpt from the dramatic climax in which the novel's narrator, Mark Easterbrook, solves the mystery of several unexplained deaths. I slammed back the receiver, then took it off again. I dialed a number and was lucky enough this time to get Lejeune straight away. Listen, I said, is Ginger's hair coming out by the roots in handfuls? Well, as a matter of fact, I believe it is. High fever, I suppose. Fever, my foot, I said. What Ginger's suffering from, what they've all suffered from, is thallium poisoning. Please God, may we be in time. Christie may have got the idea for her plot a few years earlier in 1957 when the KGB attempted to assassinate Nikolai Koklov, a former KGB assassin himself who had defected to the United States. In turn, Christie's dramatic and detailed description of the symptoms of thallium poisoning in The Pale Horse is thought to have saved at least two lives and led to the arrest and conviction of a British factory worker who had used thallium to kill his stepmother, two work colleagues and nauseate around 70 others. It's so dangerous because thallium has similar biological properties to potassium ions, hijacking the ubiquitous sodium-potassium membrane pump to smuggle itself into cells throughout the body, interfering with the important roles played by potassium. Thallium is pretty abundant in the Earth's crust, found in several selenium-containing minerals. Indeed, it was whilst cooking up one such compound in 1861 that British chemist William Crookes noted that Suddenly a bright green line flashed into view and quickly disappeared. He knew he was onto a new element and called it thallium, after the Greek for green shoot or twig, thallos. The following year, he succeeded in isolating small quantities of the element, but nowhere near the quantities obtained by French chemist Claude-Auguste Lamy, who was working away independently with a greater bulk of raw material. When, in 1862, Lamy was awarded a medal at the International Exhibition in London for the discovery of a new and abundant source of thallium, Crookes had a fit, and it was only with his election to the Royal Society in 1863, largely on the back of his thallium work, that the cross-channel spat for priority died down. Subsequent work on the chemistry of thallium showed it to have similar properties to several other elements, including silver, mercury and lead, so much so that French chemist Jean-Baptiste Dumas 
later dubbed it the Ornithorhynchus, or duck-billed platypus of the metals. The raw material on which both Crookes and Lamy worked was from waste products deposited during the manufacture of sulfuric acid. The commercial production of thallium today is not dissimilar, with the metal mostly recovered as a byproduct of smelting iron, zinc or lead sulphides to make sulphur dioxide. The resulting thallium contains the two naturally occurring stable isotopes, with around 30% of it made up of atomic mass 203, and the remaining 70% comprised of atomic mass 205. Owing to its toxic properties, thallium has been used as a rodenticide, though there are safer ways to kill rats, and the use of this chemical in the environment is now banned in many countries. Today, thallium is of greatest use to the electronics industry. In particular, the conductivity of thallium sulphide alters on exposure to infrared light, making it an important compound in photocells. Thallium bromide iodide crystals have also been used in infrared detectors. The addition of metals like thallium to glass can reduce its melting point to as low as 150 degrees centigrade. As such low melting point glasses do not shatter like normal glasses, they're particularly useful for the manufacture of electronic parts. Thallium is also being tested in high temperature ceramic superconductors. Alongside the two stable isotopes, there are a further 23 radioisotopes, though most of them with fleeting half-lives. One of them, thallium-201, is useful in nuclear medicine. It's injected into the bloodstream and will find its way into all tissues with the help of the sodium-potassium membrane pump. This can then reveal to the clinician any part of the body not bathed in blood or where the membrane transport is not working properly. In particular, it's used to image the blood flow to heart muscle in patients suspected of coronary artery disease. Thankfully, with a suitably short half-life of just 72 and a half hours, thallium-201 disappears from the body long before it can cause the lethal damage of the more stable isotopes. In The Pale Horse, Agatha Christie was not as explicit about the treatment for thallium poisoning as she was about its symptoms. Do they know how to treat thallium poisoning? asks the narrator Mark Easterbrook when he reaches the hospital where the hair-shredding ginger has been taken. You don't often get a case of it, the investigating officer, Inspector Lejeune, tells him. But everything possible will be tried. It was. And for those who like their happy endings, you'll be pleased to know that ginger makes a full recovery from the thallium poisoning that had stricken her down. Well, that's a relief that she was OK, although Henry has now given the ending away, so we're very sorry about that. That was science writer Henry Nichols with the story of thallium, next time to the element that led to the birth of the science of spectroscopy. Meanwhile, if you'd like to hear more of the stories of the elements that make up the world around us, then take a look at the Royal Society of Chemistry's website, which you can find at chemistryworld.org slash elements. Laying the facts bare. I say... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Dave Ansell and me, Ben Valsler. This is a special show looking back at our favourite moments of the last year, but we would still love to hear from you with your questions and comments. Just email them to chris at thenakedscientists.com. Now we can go to another one of my favourite kitchen science experiments, proving the explosive potential of citrus fruit. For this week's kitchen science, we're going to prove to you that an orange is actually explosive. Dave, what have we got planned? Not quite sure explosive, but certainly a lot more flammable than you'd expect. OK, all you need for this is an orange and a candle and some way of lighting the candle. That sounds easy enough. Do you need to eat the orange first? Well, you need the peel of the orange. That's the important bit. So, first of all, you need to open the orange and start peeling. You're using a really big orange. I can never remember what type they are, but it's not a clementine or a little thing like that. It's a big, fat orange. Is that what we need for this experiment, or could you use something else? I think all oranges will work, but the ones which work best tend to be the really big ones with a really thick, kind of juicy skin. So it's possible that other things like a grapefruit might work as well? Yeah, they should work as well. I haven't tested them, so I, don't, I can't say for certain, but I think they should work. So once you've peeled your orange... You said we need to find a way to light a candle. Now, that shouldn't be too much trouble for anybody. Do you have some matches? Yep, there's some over here. So I shall get a candle lit while Dave peels his orange. The room smells delightfully orange now, Dave. Cheers, Ben. So, I've now got the candle lit. Dave, how are you doing with your orange? 
I've eaten some of it. I guess I probably ought to do the experiment now. <laughs> yes, we can eat it afterwards, but now we have the whole orange peel in one big chunk. We have a lit candle. The room smells of a mixture of sulphurous matches and lovely fresh orange. It's actually a very nice smell, but what do we need to do? OK, basically you want to take a bit of the peel, get it right next to the flame of the candle and squeeze it. I don't know if you ever noticed the way sometimes when you open an orange you get that kind of spray coming out of the skin. You want to get that into the candle. So we need to squeeze it with the outside out. We certainly don't want the pithy inner pointed towards the flame. That's right. Uh, shall we have a go? Yep, let's give it a shot. Wow, you just made a fireball come out of an orange peel. <laughs> your hands now look a bit sort of greasy, and, and clearly you're covered in orange, but that's really impressive. It really does flash and burn. I told you it was more flammable than you were expecting. <laughs> so why is it that we're getting what look like fireworks, and certainly fireballs, out of an orange? It's actually all to do with things which want to eat the orange. Uh, an orange is a fruit. The whole point of a fruit is for something big to eat it, take, get the seeds into its stomach, and then wander off somewhere else, and then get the seeds out again, out the other end, and then they've got something some lovely, nice, nourishing stuff around the seeds for them to fertilise them and get them to a good start on life, somewhere completely different to the original tree. So big fruits like oranges and apples are really just seed transport mechanisms. The fruit feeds the seed for a while, but more importantly, it attracts something in that will carry that seed away so that you can disperse your seeds quite widely. That's right. So the orange tree wants something to eat it, which is nice and big, which can swallow the whole orange and then carry it around and defecate it somewhere else. What it doesn't want the orange to be eaten by is either funguses or insects, because they're not going to move the seeds anywhere. So if you have an insect boring into your fruit, for example, a a fly or a wasp of sorts, then actually that's no good for seed dispersal and ultimately your seeds just fall by your roots and you end up competing with your children. That's exactly right. And you don't get to send your seeds to those lovely spots where there's no orange tree already, which is, might be perfect for it. So how does this clearly very flammable orange peel help to disperse seeds? One of the plants oranges have to stop funguses and insects eating them is on the outside layer of the orange, actually the orange bit, there's all sorts of little capsules full of some quite nasty chemicals. One of them's limonene. Um, they're hydrocarbons, and they're very good at killing insects and funguses. So they come complete with their own pesticide? That's right. They're covered in pesticides, so the pests can't get in there. The only things which can get in there are much bigger, and they're big enough to get in and eat the seeds, swallow them whole, and wander off. OK, so these are obviously very good insect repellents, but why on earth are they flammable? Surely being able to burn won't help them. It just happens that these chemicals are particularly flammable. And the reason why they burn so well in this case is that when you squeeze the skin, it squirts them out into sort of an aerosol. This means you've got little blobs of these flammable chemicals surrounded by air. have got a huge surface area. So when they do start burning, they can burn everywhere at once because things only really burn at the surfaces. They burn everywhere at once and burn very quickly in these little fireballs. So not only are there chemicals there that will burn, but the actual spraying mechanism from squeezing the peel will do that. But we eat peel from plants. We put zest into salads and salad dressings and all sorts of meals. Are we not poisoning ourselves? I guess we're not insects, and we're not actually taking very much of these chemicals, so we're probably fine. Whereas if you're an insect and you ate half an orange worth, then you wouldn't be in a good state. <laughs> so oranges produce this incredible insect-repelling, insect-killing, flammable stuff to protect themselves with. Do other fruits have similar mechanisms, or are oranges quite unique? Well, things like bananas have got a waxy layer on the outside, so water can't get in to protect them against funguses. Um, you get things like apples, which are really quite acidic, which could discourage various bugs which would want to eat them. But citrus fruits evolved in environments which are really quite harsh, whereby it's very, very hard to live. So you're going to protect anything which you have managed to build as much as possible and make sure it does what it's supposed to do. Fantastic. Well, this really is a simple experiment and a really nice one. But some of these balls of fire are actually bigger than a big orange in the first place. So if you are going to try it out at home, do be very careful and keep your hands below the flame just in case. And as with all our experiments, you can read about the science behind it, see the pictures and the video on our website at thenakedscientists.com slash kitchen science. Now, we were talking about your high-speed camera earlier, and the footage you've got from this experiment is incredible. It's beautiful stuff. 
I mean, really, the, the fireballs that come out of an orange are, are totally unexpected. But now we move on to another one of your selections. What made you pick this one? Well, this is an interesting technology which might revolutionise one of the biggest industries in this country, construction. Um, basically printing houses with a giant inkjet printer. And also partly because I'm just obsessed with computer-controlled machine tools, and this seems like the ultimate machine tool. Our next guest actually has been thinking about a rather larger problem, and that's how to build houses using a printer. Or at least he's hoping to do so soon. Rupert Saw is from Freeform Engineering, where he uses computer-aided design and rapid manufacture techniques to build walls and structures, which essentially amounts to using a gigantic 3D printer. Hello, Rupert. Thanks ever so much for joining us. Hi, Ben. Hi, Helen. So, uh, Freeform Engineering, who are you and what do you do? Well, essentially, we do rapid prototyping and uh, with a slight speciality in that we focus on the construction uh, industry and, in particular, on those large-scale elements where we're really printing big things. So, rapid prototyping, uh, I'm guessing the name gives away what it is. It's for making a prototype very quickly. Yeah, kind of. It's where it started. There's additive manufacturing, layer manufacturing. There's many different terms that that are applied to this technology. All of them essentially similar, taking a material, squirting it, pasting it down one layer at a time and building up a three-dimensional object over time. Now, I would assume that normally this is used for things like new designs of mobile phones or perhaps things that you hold in your hands. Absolutely, typically plastic things, but, you know, small metal components, things that, you know, mobile phones, automotive, aerospace, very, very common. But you're thinking of much, much bigger things. Yeah, and one level. I mean, part of it is actually bringing this into the, this awareness of what this technology is into the construction and architectural and design sector. And so trying to inform and um, bring about a new capability. Architecture itself is producing more complex designs and more interesting designs in the buildings that we see around them. They are able to generate amazing structures and forms in a computer, and the challenge is then how how on earth do we actually fabricate those? How do we make them? They get stuck in the computer nowadays, these designs (laughs) do. And so these printing technologies just work layer by layer, printing one layer at a time. And in fact, there's no great magic involved. If you look at how any house is built, it's all built with layers of bricks. And the reason it's built with layers of bricks is that we can build the bits inside as well as the bits outside. So this technology is really cool because it allows us to print the really complicated stuff inside at the same time as everything outside. Uh, Of course, and the complicated stuff usually would would mean greater expense because it takes more time and more expertise. If you were talking about traditional engineering and manufacturing and trying to machine something out of a solid block to try and get inside it, it's damn near impossible in most (laughs) of the best of times. But, uh, you know, you can really get into these structures and make them really complicated and do quite remarkable things. One of the key things in buildings nowadays is all about using the right materials. And we've, we've talked on the show before about things like thin layers of, of wax in, mm. inside little capsules that melt when you get to a certain temperature and then solidify again and to use this as insulation. Uh, are you limited with this sort of rapid prototyping as to what materials you can actually lay down? Yes and no, like all things. There's no one ubiquitous process that does everything. But essentially, if you take your desk jet printer and literally scale it in your mind and instead of ink you're putting through cement or gypsum let's say then you're somewhere close to where we're going with this Uh, and you know it seems almost uh, strange to think that you could squirt cement out and and it wouldn't slump all over the ground but that's because you know cement is used in molds at the moment Mm. and concrete and and it's designed to be sloppy and you take out those uh, retardants and and things like that and and it starts to set quite quickly so very very quickly you can build up three-dimensional structures very very big ones if if that indeed, is indeed what you're into doing. <laughs> so I, I think you've given us a very good image of how it works, but I, right now I, I'm sort of picturing a, a giant frame with a, an inkjet-type head, effectively a bucket with a hole in the bottom that you control that moves forwards and backwards in three dimensions and releases your material as and where you need it. Yeah, if you've ever seen a large crane working in a shipyard, I mean, most people have got an image, you know, that's a big crane, you know, and it's placing big things. And that's kind of uh, where this is going, large crane systems or gantry systems that can, uh, you know, have deposition heads or squirty heads that are squirting stuff out and building them up. But that's kind of a very simple...
simplistic level, you know, as this technology evolves, then one very, very large machine very quickly becomes many, many small machines. And then you're into autonomous robots, swarms, and all that wonderful future that lies ahead for us. It's a lovely idea that building sites might one day just consist of robots that get it done over and done with really quickly, no wolf whistling, no builder's bums. That's it. It's quite simple, you know, the tech, it's, it's not hard to squirt things out and build things. You know, ask anybody that's made a cake with icing sugar, it's dead straightforward. But getting it to, you know, in swarms and collective agents, and, and then you open up a whole new world of possibilities and what you can build. So effectively, because of the way that you can do this layer by layer, you can do the whole thing in, in one run. You don't have to print the outside walls and then take your machines inside and print in all the inside walls. You can actually just say, this is the design of house I want, go. Yeah, now, the, the whole point of this is that traditional construction is a, is a very hierarchical thing. Mm. You start by putting the superstructure, and gradually, with first, second, third fixing, you come down in resolution, if you like, till you're fi- literally fixing the screws and nuts and bolts into the structure. And so it's, it's a very top-down approach. When you're printing a structure, um, then, you know, and printing all the channels and ducts within the walls as well, and, and then you've, got to, you've essentially got to do the whole thing, all scales of resolution, at the same time. So you've got to print fast to get your materials down, but at the same time you've got to print really fine to print all those little channels and ducts. And, and that's the key to it. As one of a friend of mine says, it's the real estate of the future lies between the walls in our homes, right. those two surfaces. And at the moment they're essentially solid, but very quickly we can engineer those walls and fabricate and essentially fold what's said more functions into much, much smaller spaces. And, and that's the real key to where this drives forward. This is fantastic stuff. How is the cost likely to compare to traditional building? Cost, you can never compare what is essentially something that's been going for 2,000 years. You know, it's, uh, I'm not going to beat a, a brickie, and, and I was one myself, and, uh, and we could work fast. What this does is it, it enables uh, other abilities, things that a bricklayer can't imbue into a building. So if you're laying bricks, let's use that example, then you're good with straight lines and, and squares and, and, and fairly uniform shapes. A printer, if you ask it to print a squiggly line or a, or a square, it doesn't care. It makes no distinction. Essentially, you can print complicated shapes and structures and forms. There's no cost involved in how complex the structure is. Now, that's a fundamental difference between how existing construction is and what it could be. So we're not uh, usurping uh, existing construction by any means. We're, we're just going to add to those capabilities. So a lot of the key discussions are about sustainable construction, natural ventilation. I know you've got covering in this program. And and, and what we're able to do is actually fold the actual structures and channels and functions into tight and tight spaces in these walls and actually make and design structures that truly can capture energy from the environment. And, you know, people know me for termites. I'm a bit mad like that. But, you know, that, that's where we're kind of going with walls as membranes and, and not barriers, if you want a quick soundbite distinction there. This all sounds fantastic, and I hope that we will see it in building sites in the very near future. That was Rupert Saw, director of Freeform Engineering. He was explaining how one day you might just select the house that you want on a computer screen and then let it print out. I have a feeling it might cost rather more than a couple of reams of A4 to actually print the thing out. It could well do, yes. He actually brought some of this incredible stuff in with him. Obviously, he didn't bring a whole house, but he brought some examples of the complexity with which you can print things, even things that essentially looked like chain mail. But this was printed out of what's really plastic. And so somehow they've managed to print it, and still all these individual chains remain separate. It acts exactly like chainmail. And really it shows that this stuff could be used for very complex, very interesting materials. But now we'll hand over to Laura Soule, who brings us some explosive chemistry experiments from Brighton University's Dr Hal. Recently, the naked scientists were visited by Dr Hal and his assistant Dave Campbell from the University of Brighton. They stopped by to show us some of the amazing experiments they've been demonstrating on their Ministry of Chemistry tour. First up, Dr Howe grabbed a handful of solid carbon dioxide and dropped it into a bucket of water. Here, Dave, we've got a gas. It doesn't know it's a gas. It thinks it's a solid. Carbon dioxide. Solid CO2 at minus 78. It's a solid. It doesn't turn into a liquid. It turns straight into a gas. Look at that. Shooting right up there. And what that's showing us is that gases occupy much more space than the solids which gave rise to them. We can see here that the solid's turning straight to a gas. It's going straight from solid to gas. You can see the balls of gas coming from the bits of solid. And you can also see that one mole of gas occupies far more space than one mole of solid. We saw huge plumes of carbon dioxide gas pumping out from the water, 
all from just a handful of solid carbon dioxide, subliming to produce much more gas than its volume as a solid. This happens because the molecules in a gas are free to move around, rather than being locked tightly together. But carbon dioxide gas is colourless and transparent, so the white, smoky plume we could see was actually something else. Now, the white smoke you can see coming out, that's actually water vapour. The CO2's propelling out the water vapour because it's still so cold, having come out of the hot water, so we are making real clouds. And where are they going, Dave? They're going down. Yeah, yep. the clouds yep. are going right down, proving that CO2 is denser than air. Now, the other interesting property of um, CO2 is we use it as a fire extinguisher. OK, Dave, can you just light sure. that splint for me? Dave's just lit a nice wooden splint, and I'm putting it into the CO2 smoke, and the flame goes straight out. In order for something to burn, it requires a fuel. In this case, it was some wood. And it requires an oxidizer, in this case oxygen from the air. By submerging the flame in the carbon dioxide gas, it was deprived of oxygen, stopping it from burning. More carbon dioxide coming up. But first, they looked at the properties of liquid nitrogen. Unlike carbon dioxide, if you cool nitrogen gas to minus 196 degrees Celsius, it turns into a liquid. We've got some liquid nitrogen here, and we're going to do our, going to do the old liquid nitrogen light bulb. Nitrogen is an inert gas, which means, although this looks suicidally stupid, I am indeed putting a light bulb into liquid nitrogen, and I am going to turn it on. And what's going to happen is, I hope, the light bulb will glow in the beautiful liquid nitrogen and make lots of bubbles, and we can even get a rise in the number of bubbles produced as we turn the power up. We would never recommend you put a light bulb or any electrical equipment into a liquid. But because nitrogen doesn't conduct electricity, Dr Howe was safe. Turning the power up gave the light bulb more energy, which caused the nitrogen around it to boil more vigorously, creating more bubbles. Next, Dr Howe did something that seemed even more stupid. So, now we've got a light bulb with no glass, because we broke the glass, we've just got the filament, which is made of tungsten. And light bulbs normally have an inert gas atmosphere, like argon. Yes, yes. Because if you heat up tungsten to its red hot in air, it, of course, oxidises and the light bulb burns out. And we've got liquid nitrogen, which is, of course, air without the oxidant. And I'm going to put our light bulb without the glass into it and turn it on. And I think we can all see, and hopefully the listeners can hear, that the bulb is glowing in our liquid nitrogen. But more importantly... Mate. It's not burning out. That is truly amazing. Yes. That is amazing. I mean, I can't... It's... And we are bright sparks. We certainly are. And if it goes wrong, it's not my fault. Right. Yeah. Should <laughs> yeah. we do it? We can leave all the electricity puns out. No, I think we? we should, yeah. Right, OK. So what we'll do is just pull this out and um, illustrate our theory that when I pull it out, it's going to glow for a little while and then it's going to go out oh, by itself. Go. So, in the liquid nitrogen, which doesn't react with other chemicals, the tungsten filament can become glowing hot with no ill effects just like it would do in the argon gas inside a bulb. Once the filament is exposed to the air, however, it reacts with oxygen and quickly burns out. Dr Hal's explosive finale this week takes us back to solid carbon dioxide and the consequences of warming it up in a sealed container. What we've got here, lemonade bottles. Yep. Polyethylene terephthalate, designed to withstand the internal pressure of carbonated drinks. These can withstand about six atmospheres. Lots, lots of technology in them. They've got little grooves in the thread so that the lid doesn't pop into yeah, when you open yeah. it up. And I was thinking to myself, what would happen if we put some carbon dioxide in, which sublimes, as we all know, that Absolute. is, turned from a solid to a gas. Straight to a gas, yeah. With some boiling water uh -huh. and put the lid on and ran away. What do you think is going to happen? I think the CO2 is going to sublime, and we've already worked out that one mole of a gas occupies much more than a mole of solid, so I think it's going to have a big old bang. Now, these bottles withstand about six atmospheres... CO2 can produce, under certain circumstances, 50 atmospheres. So it'll be a case of CO2-1, bottle nil. So what I'm doing is I'm putting CO2 chips into the bottle. And the problem we're going to have is, as soon as we put the boiling water in to sublime the CO2, the gas is going to try and get out. So we have to use our ingenious long-stemmed funnel and a kettle of boiling water. And what's going to happen is the water's going to splash around... Dave and I will get third-degree schooled, but as long as the naked scientist listeners get what they want, that's OK Absolutely. by us. I think day. things are going to get exciting. So, let's remind everyone what's going on. We've got a lemonade bottle with about a fifth full of solid CO2. We're about to put in two litres of boiling water, and then we're going to put the lid on and see what happens. Let nature take its course. What do you think, Dave? OK. OK, three, two, one. In you go, Dave. We're going. I'm pouring. OK, oh. big white fumes coming out. 
Hissing away. Keep going, Dave. I'm pouring, I'm pouring. Keep going, Dave. It's breaking up, Dave. Oh, I don't, I can't see. I can't hold it together, no. Dave. Keep it going. I'm pouring, going. I'm pouring. Pouring, pouring, pouring. Come it's on, difficult to see. It's difficult to see. Keep it going, Dave. Nearly you there. You sure? You sure? Yeah. Keep pouring. Water's full. It's doing well, Dave. Keep it going. I'm pouring, I'm still pouring. Okay, stop there, Dave. Okay. And we'll take the funnel out. Okay. Okay. Right, Dave, ready on the shield? Okay, fingers in your ears, audience at home. Ready, Dave? There we go. Feedback. CO2 for you. Oh, Dave. Are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, yes, once again. Yes, uh, CO2. Yeah, it was. Oh. Okay, she comes up with the goods every time, though. She does, yeah. yeah. I hope that shepherd's yeah. pie in my trousers. <laughs> and while that enormous bang echoed through the corridors of Cambridge University's pathology department, Dave and Dr Howe were already preparing next week's explosive experiments. We'll be blowing up hydrogen balloons, exploding ostrich eggs, and hearing the ear-splitting woof of the barking dog. That's coming up next week. That was Laura Soul with Dr Hal and his assistant, Sideshow Dave. Next week's instalment promises to be particularly explosive. I'm afraid that's it for all our best bits, but tune in next week when Diana and Mira will be taking you through their favourites. They'll be parajetting over Everest, swallowing swords and investigating a Greek brothel. <laughs> well... I have to look out for that one. A big thank you to everyone who contributed to this week's show and to our production team. That's Mira Senthalingam, Diana O'Carroll, Laura Soul, Chris Smith and Tom Simpkins. If you want to get in touch, then you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com and we'll be back with brand new kitchen science experiments very soon. Do join Diana and Mira next week, but for now, goodbye. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Naked Scientist.